You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Because I was spending all my time, energy, and attention on other people's programs. And when I stopped and looked up, I realized that I was really busy. Uh, I was even really productive, but it wasn't, I wasn't uh, following a map that I built for my life. And I'm still really busy and I'm still trying to, to make an impact and hit these checkpoints, but it's my map now. Um, and, you know, I can accept that some of those will all be rock star moments and some of those will be mediocre moments. The important thing is just checkpoint to checkpoint, day to day, get it done, momentum matters. We're doing something a little different today on the podcast. Rachel Reidenauer is a 32 year US Army veteran and the founder of Record the Journey, a nonprofit organization that provides outdoor adventures and photography training to military veterans and their families in order to help with transition. She reached out to interview me to record the journey of my successful transition from military service to civilian life. I'm sharing it on the podcast to bring awareness to the challenges transitioning veterans face and to amplify Rachel's great work. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Yeah, so um, what branch of the military were you in? What was the job that you held and how long did you serve? Alrighty, so, um, you know, I have multiple relationships with military service. I went to the United States Military Academy at West Point when I was 18 um, and went through the majority of Beast and really looked at it and for a lot of different reasons decided that was not for me at that phase in my life. Uh, and I knew growing up in the military families, like the Army's not going anywhere, right? If I still want to do that and still want to pursue that, I can always go and get my education and then come back. And that's, in fact, what I ended up doing. And so I joined the Army National Guard as a senior in college um, and quickly uh, became an officer, got deployed, activated and joined the, um, or excuse me, got activated to go to Operation Iraqi Freedom. We were assigned to the 101st Airborne Airborne um, Air Assault Division. So um, that has its own sort of legacy sure. in the Army, right? Yeah. Um, exited from that back into the National Guard, but because of my experience in service um, overseas, I actually started becoming, um, got pushed into more and more um, joint force military logistics planning operations and training operations. And so when I got back, I ended up being in, um, there's a way to do it such that you could be basically like three quarter time in the Army National Guard between, you know, active duty for training and active duty for special work. So I was doing that and still pursuing my PhD in philosophy. Um, ended up staying in um, logistics, had company command, and I exited as a captain in 2010. So that's sort of the arc of my military career um, in the two-minute version of that. Wow. That's, uh, so uh, where were you in Iraq? We were stationed in Kuwait, but we delivered point-to-point from Doha to Mosul. And so we would pick it up from the ship and take it all the way north and then come back. So missions would average between 10 to 12 days when we were there. The the, the tour before us, it was sometimes 20, 25 days. Um, so it was, yeah, our home base was in Kuwait. But when we were in really convoy operations, it was Iraq, um, driving, picking up stuff, dropping stuff off, getting it where it needed to go. And uh, so a lot of people who, who haven't served in the military don't understand uh, that something as casual as just driving trucks to drop things off is actually one of the more stressful things to do in a, in a combat zone uh, because those are, are targets of opportunity for the enemy. And uh, I can see where that checkpoint by checkpoint framework becomes really important in just navigating that day. Yeah, we we deployed at the time that the insurgents had best figured out how to um, disrupt and ambush convoys. And so to your point, Rachel, um, a lot of times when we think of the army and we think of sort of, we think of maybe the infantry, we think of the folks in tanks and things like that. But for every one of them, there's seven to nine combat services, combat service folks. And so from the insurgents point of view, and this must like many of our point of view, would you rather attack a tank 
or would you rather attack a Freightliner <laughs> truck, right? Um, we'll go with the truck, please. Um, and so that's what they would do more and more of. And also, um, it's one of those things that, you know, an army marches on its feet. Or excuse me, marches on the stomach. Screw that up. But an army marches on the stomach. And so the best way sometimes to, in their situation, to prolong and win is actually to starve out the army or to make sure yeah. that food, ammunition, fuel is not getting where it needs to go. So um, I can tell you that there are a lot of things that are, you know, that will scare, that will scare our infantry folks and scare our, our tankers. Well, high on the list is no food and no fuel and no ammo, right? Absolutely. Um, about those three things, you're, you're kind of like, the tank doesn't do you much good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's, so uh, obviously when you come home, there's a process of transitioning back out of that combat mindset, back into being a, a husband, a family member, a, a, a member of civil society. How, how did that work for you? What, what helped you? Um, did you need help? How, how was that transition? Yeah, I am incredibly fortunate in that despite, you know, some of the experiences over there, um, I came back really healthy mentally and emotionally and physically. And so I didn't have any of the severe um, PTSD or um, some of the trauma, right, whether it's physical, emotional or mental that many of our fellow troops have had. And so I count myself super, super fortunate. Um, and I was also, again, an officer at the time in an XO position in my company. And so um, the Nebraska National Guard actually did a really good job of stressing the importance of mental health and community and having support groups. And so um, as a leader of the of the unit that I was in, I made sure to attend those and sort of model that we can attend those. Um, even if I didn't feel like I needed it at the time, I didn't yeah. want my troops to think in that sort of way that can happen is that like, if I show up there then people are going to think I'm hurting or I'm not, you know, or that I need to be sidelined because I, because I can't hang. And so I'm like, no, we're all going. And I want to make sure um, that my fellow officers did it. And then when I became a company commander, it was the same thing, kept going, <laughs> kept yeah. going to support my troops so that they can see their commander, they can see their leaders there. Um, and so um, what I will say is that had some side benefit, right? In the sense of I didn't think I needed to go, but it was nice to go and just sort of be reconnected with folks who had had that same experience and um, who, you know, just gave me lenses like, oh, that thing that I didn't make a big deal of, other people are dealing with that. So for any transitioning soldier or any transitioning service member, um, I would just encourage to go to those, even if you don't think you need to, because um, you're likely going to get something that you don't really see at the time that you didn't prioritize at the time, but a year later um, will come up. But really what happened for me is that, um, you sort of mentioned the checkpoint to checkpoint mentality. Um, I realized about a year, maybe 15 months into being back in grad school that I just wasn't making any progress in my academic career. Like I was doing the homework, right? I was sort of going to class. I was just sort of going through that checkpoint to checkpoint sort of scenario, but I wasn't invested in developing my body of work as an academic, picking my subject area and so on and so forth. So I had a little bit of like, what's wrong with me for the first period. But then I was like, oh, I'm still operating the same way that I was operating over there. And it got me through there, but it's not going to build the career and life that I need here. Like I need to be more proactive. I need to be more strategic. I need to define my own mission as opposed to just responding to the mission that, that my commanders and my leaders were giving me, right? And really figure out what my path was, which is a completely different skill set right? Then, you know, getting like, take the hill or, or deliver this from there or there. And you're like, Roger, got it. I'm going to go and do that. And you just get a series of those. Um, but that's not really the way for us to build a thriving life for ourselves, especially once you transition. I would say even in the military, like I, I caught on fairly early, right? That I was doing that. And then I was able, even in those last three or four years of my, of my tenure to start charting and crafting my career, the way that I wanted it to go. So I got better and better assignments, things that were more and more interesting, things that were more and more unique to my, what I could provide. I call them your gates, genius, affinities, talents, expertise, and strengths. So I started charting my military career a lot differently after that point. Cause I'm like, Oh, this is on me. I can't wait for that next assignment. I need to tell my commanders what assignments I want, right. And what I'm fine for and start training for those. Um, partially that's because I, we redeployed in September. I was back in school in September. 
Wow. Right. Um, I had already arranged it because I was like, that's when the semester started. And like, I was like, I've already been out for a year. I just kind of want to get back to my life, you know? Um, And so we had that sort of two week mandatory period there. But after that, I was back in school, right? It's back on to the next mission, doing the next thing. And so in retrospect, right, knowing what I know now that I'm 40 versus when I was 26, right, <laughs> um, what I was 20, 25, actually, um, what I would say now is like, maybe like, give yourself some space to not think that you need to get back on that career ladder and think, not, you know, that you're not because it's, it's a hard transition, right? It's a hard transition. And, and I think people who are not in the military don't understand this, right? People, every, every service member I know understands this, like when you're on mission, while what you do may be incredibly difficult, there's a simplicity to your life. You do that thing, right? Um, if you're a logistics coordinator like I was and a battle captain and sort of, you know, a um, battle in a sort of convoy planner, that's my job. I do that. I do that really, really well. I've got a bunch of people around me to support that. I don't have to worry about food. I don't have to worry about getting paid. I don't have to worry about, the, you know, the administration of my troops. Don't have to worry about any of that. Just do your job and do it well. Accomplish the mission. Go home. Um, when you go home, it's not like that, right? <laughs> it's like you go to work and you got to come home and figure out dinner. And then there's something wrong with the car. And then like you realize all of a sudden, I, I don't have any buddies at work. It's just like me doing the work. Um, and there's small things like I, um, the community that you have when you're deployed or when you're in the military just evaporates because there's a fundamental emotional, psychological, social shift when you live with people that you work with versus when you work with people and then you go home. Right. And so one of the things that I missed a lot is when I, when, you know, me and my, my, my good friend, Eric, um, he was also another Lieutenant. He was the XO of the company. We were both lieutenants and and platoon leaders. Um, But every day, you know, we'd wake up, we, wake up about the right time because you're sleeping in a six to eight man tent. Yep. Right. And so <laughs> one person gets up, you're all getting up. Right. <laughs> yep. uh, and, you know, we'd go down to the shower together and it's the only context in which men can like walk to the shower, like be in the shower, talking to each other, right. Doing all that. We walk back, we get trained or we get dressed, we go eat, we go eat, you know, we go to the defac to eat. And then we had our separate duty stations. We'd go do that for, you know, four hours. And then we knew roughly when we needed to eat again. So one of us would stop by the other duty station, pick up the other, go to DFAC, come back, go back to duty station, right? Um, And then at the end of the day, we would like do, you know, eat. There's a lot of eating involved, apparently. Um, (laughs) Rinse and repeat. (laughs) Rinse and repeat. But we'd eat and we'd do stuff in the evening, like play Halo and things like that. And that became part of your daily rhythm, right? And um, so you end up in those types of relationships. And so that was one that we had, but everyone had that sort of thing. Not everyone. A lot of people had that, right? Whether it was three or four people or whether it was one or two people. Um, You come back home, that doesn't exist anymore, right? You have to start negotiating with your family to hang out with your, with like your soul brothers anymore. Like you can't just be like, it's the end of the day. I'm just hanging out with Eric. Like what's wrong, what's wrong with that? And when, when we redeploy, Eric lived like six blocks away from me. Right. We just happened to live in the same neighborhood. Right. Well, that's cool. Coincidence. Yeah. Right. But we were both married at the time. Right. And so wives, you know, who usually wanted to see us, right. Sometimes not so much. Um, (laughs) And so it was just a whole different thing. And so that level of consistency, simplicity, um, very tight bonding between the people you work with and, you know, all those sort of things just evaporates overnight. Yeah. Right. No, that's great. Uh, And I'm really glad that you brought that up because ironically, it's one of the reasons why we choose to sponsor a veteran during the rebel rally it's only a, a 10 day long event, but it's very similar. You know, you're, you're single-minded focused, you've got a driver and you've got a navigator and you've got a plan for the day and you're going to execute that plan and you eat together, you sleep together, you laugh together, you get angry together, you, you know, maybe there's a few tears together and then you get back up and you do it again. And it creates that bond very quickly that military veterans are very accustomed to. Um, and this, the civilian women who are doing the rebel, it's their first time to sort of, experience that and it, it can be very powerful um yeah, yes. it's hugely powerful and it's one of those things where it's like unless so let's think about the arc of one's life 
And especially when you think about the fact that high school for many people is the last time that they have those types of relationships with people, especially if you're, if you're, you know, an athlete where you're going on away games and you're doing all that kind of whatnot, it's very similar to that structure. Um, Maybe college for some people who are in fraternity and things like that. But, you know, after you're 22 or 23, sleepovers stop, right? Um, These, you know, multi-day events, right, that you can go on, unless you're hunting, unless you're doing some of these things that you didn't have to recreate and initiate on your own, they all evaporate, right? And um, the military journey prolongs that for however long you're in the military, Right. And so you don't transition into the very solitary nuclear family lifestyle, perhaps until you're out of the military. Um, And so it's not only just your job has changed, but the way you orient fundamentally to people changes. And it's hard. It's hard, but it's absolutely doable. And and that's one of the things that we're trying to do is record those successful moments and stories of transition to share with our brothers and sisters in the military, because it's, it's how we're taught to learn as we, you know, it's a, it's, it's a mentorship community as a general rule. So I really appreciate you, you know, sharing, sharing those insights. Uh, One of the challenges I had to, uh, you know, I've, I'm still in the Army Reserves, told them I was retiring in January, uh, still waiting for retirement papers. Uh, hopefully, yeah. hopefully I'll see that here in the next few months. But as an Army Reservist who did multiple combat deployments, so you're over your back, you're over your back, you're, you're over your back. For me, uh, trying to reconcile some things, I got way out into nature, picked up a camera and found a lot of healing power in the creative arts. Uh, as, a, as an author, uh, you know, with a, a new book back there that I think is a year old. Uh, I, and, and just the way uh, you've lived your life, my impression is I, I would definitely describe you as artistic uh, and, and creative and, and this community of create, creative giants that you've built. But I know as a military member, I had to sort of be okay with that label, creative and artist, because it, mm-hmm. it, it sort of the military culture has an implied um, stereotype that, that, that is not who you are as a soldier or as a, a sailor. So for me, that was one of my hardest transitions. I think I'm still working through that. I'm still trying that label on for size is being okay with saying that I, I am creative and I am an artist. And it's, I would argue, and I, I'd be really interested in your opinions. When you create something, uh, I think you're completely listening to yourself. And that has huge power because most of us know what we need. We just aren't always accustomed to listening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we're talking about the um, differences between reservists and sort of active duty folk in a lot of ways. Right. Um, Because part of my challenge is it really wasn't the tension when I got out of being deployed with being creative um, and being sort of, especially the way my, my creativity shows up because it's not like black bake, black beret creativity is like, I'm not overpainting and taking pictures. Like I'm a writer, I'm an info designer. I'm like, I use creativity to create different solutions that tend to be very practical. And so, um, actually the military, the army loved that. Right. And so, um, that wasn't a tension point then what was a tension point was being a philosopher, right? Cause they knew that I was studying philosophy and they're like, so how does that like, no, like um, no professor, we don't need to do that. So you'd get comments like that. Right. And then um, fortunately you had skills to sort of walk them out, how they were either wrong or you would get to some, some sort of new synthesis with that. Um, the, so the really big trick from both of the communities I was in at the time was I was again, pursuing my PhD in philosophy. I'm all but dissertation in that. So that's why I keep saying like not getting my, my PhD. So um but so for my academic ecosystem, it was like, so we don't really know what to do with this whole military thing, <laughs> right? You're, oh, right, right. Totally right. different cultures We don't there. know, like, mm, like, how does that, we don't, we don't understand it. And so I, I legit had people who are, you know, other ethicists be like, I don't understand how you could be an ethicist and be a soldier at the same time. Right. And I'm like, that's a really interesting bias and frame. Let's talk about that. Right. Um, But on the military side, it was also like, we don't really know what to do with that whole philosopher academic thing over there. Like, hmm. And so it was really of not having a home in either one of the communities. And I think in the same way as like 
your colleagues are like, we don't know what to do with you being a, a like a photographer. Like, how does that work? Right. Yeah. Why yeah. are you here? Like, shouldn't you be like, I don't know, putting flowers in guns or something like <laughs> what are you doing here? Right. And so it, that's a particular journey um, when, you know, especially creatives or academics um, come out and, tra- and transition back into that. Um, and, and I think in the active duty side of things, because um, it, it's really more of the like, we don't know what to do with this whole uh, like soldier leading thing. Like we, we understand how it's important, but how is that relevant to us? Right. Can, can you give us a business case for that? Right. right. Luckily, I think the, the business world has come a lot more, has come along and they're like, we don't know what it means. We just know that you guys rock. Right. We know that we want veterans because our businesses are better when we have veterans and when we have people from the military in them. And so we don't know why, but we want you please come on. Right. And so, and I, I appreciate that our society, our business landscape has moved that way to value vets and value people in military service, much more so than those that came before us and came out of Vietnam and some of those, those periods of times, which, you know, as we all know, it's, it's on record how, how much suffering they went through to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I completely agree. And I think that one of the, the strengths that the military brings into that community is we have a bias for, um, for can doisms, if you will. Right. So our, our prejudices in the military by and large are you can, or you can't, which is really mm-hmm. important in today's landscape where it's not about what religion you practice or, you know, what your family unit looks like or what your ethnic, you know, or, point of origin looks like. It's all about you can get it done or you can't. And I think that's an important value system to bring into the world today. Um, and we're really good at, uh, you know, riffing on each other and helping people build thick skin and having honest conversations. So, yeah, it, I mean, yeah, because you will go through um, part of the thing that, that I've missed the most. Um, and it's been a decade in, in training myself is just the frank brief conversations that you can have in the military with people around performance or when they're when they're you know when they're off course right those are short conversations yeah right um and a correction will happen right (laughs) and in the civilian world it's it's like a much more prolonged sort of way of getting to the point right um and especially you know my my now eight teammates um are um, creative. They are not from the military. Right. Um, and there's just a, you know, um, you know, I can't say ship up or shape out or you know, uh, shape up or ship out. Like yep. that's, that's a thing you can say in the army. Right. That's right. Um, that's right. You need to get right. And this isn't my problem. Right. Yeah. You can <laughs> say that super, super quickly in the military. Civilian landscape, not so much. Not so much. And there's a translation cost between those languages, right? So I think that's an important piece of, of uh, you know, folks like you with the, the National Guard experience, the active experience, you know, and you know, I did active duty time as well as working as a translator with a foot in each one of those, those worlds to be able to bridge those gaps. But it, it does take energy. And sometimes returning veterans don't have the energy to make that translation, which is why it's important that veterans help veterans up until a certain point where they can then go out and navigate um, the rest of that terrain on their own. Uh, so I also think, and I want to thank, you know, uh, your, your book and your concepts too, for helping me. Cause I know that uh, one of the other things the military teaches is whatever you do, you're going to do it all the way and you're going to be top, top all the way through, right? Excellence. It's all about excellence mm-hmm. and the pursuit of excellence, but you can't be good at everything uh, and still be, um, things are going to drop. If you're trying to do all of the things, you can't do all of the things at the top of your game. So I know it was a, a huge sort of light bulb moment for me to realize that I can do some of the things okay and still do some of the things all the way. Uh, and that was a profound moment. It's like like the Rebel Rally. We don't have to go after all the black checkpoints. It's okay to have a day where we're just doing greens and blues. Take the easy money off the table get the score built up a little bit and save the, uh, the energy for the blacks when it's really time to go after, after that. So thank you very much for that. It, it had a huge personal impact. And honestly, I wouldn't have the nonprofit I have if uh, somebody in the start finishing world didn't, as I was reading through stuff, didn't tell me that uh, this, this, you need to go sit in a corner and unscrew yourself because it's not my problem because I was spending all my time, energy and attention on other people's programs. And when I stopped and looked up, 
I realized that I was really busy. Uh, I was even really productive, but it wasn't, I wasn't uh, following a map that I built for my life. And I'm still really busy and I'm still trying to, to make an impact and hit these checkpoints, but it's my map now. Um, and, you know, I can accept that some of those will all be rock star moments and some of those will be mediocre moments. The important thing is just checkpoint to checkpoint, day to day, get it done. Momentum matters. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And thanks for sharing your story there. And, and I'm really humbled and honored that that the work helped you do your work in that way, because that's really what it, what it's about for me and it's why I do it. And yeah, I, I, I know why the military stresses that, right? Um, and there's a context in which we do need to stress that. Yeah. Um, the civilian context is one where we, when we just look across the board, folks are overwhelmed. They're burnt out. There's, you know, barely hanging together because they're trying to do everything right at yeah. a, such a level, such an epic level that it's just unsustainable. Because again, most don't have the support system that you have in the military. Right. right? Um, and that support system allows you to be excellent. Right. And so when we look at some of what I've talked about in start finishing about, you know, success packs and, and things like that, really, there's a way that I want veterans and people in the military to understand that is saying like you're rebuilding your squad, yeah. you're rebuilding the support system you had that enabled you to be your best self and do your best work. And that's the downside of, of living in the civilian world is that you don't have an org structure that's saying, here's your squad. Yeah. Right. Make it work. Yeah. Here's your your chow hall with all the espresso you want and all the good food. And, you know, you walk outside and there's a vehicle that somebody's already made sure was going to start and get you where you need to go. And yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective and into the why. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to have to sit on that for a little bit. Yeah, And I think that's um, it's onerous in a way, but that where we see people thrive, whether they're transitioning vets or whether they're, you know, civilians is when we are intentional about building that squad, right? We are intentional about building that pack of people around us that are doing the different things that that enable us to do what we do best. And the thing about it is, is we have to remember kind of like back when you had your own squad, you did a thing, you helped your squad. It felt good for your squad to win and accomplish the mission and for you to be a, a critical part of that. When we get in civilian world, we sort of lose that and remember that everyone else on your squad may feel the same way that you felt when you were in that squad. Right. And so we get weird because it's like, well, then I got to ask for help and then I got to like get in sort of, I'm going to owe someone and then it's going to be a reciprocal game. And then they're going to think I'm weak and all those sort of things that head trash that you get. Right. But I just want, especially transitioning vets who get that or transitioning military members who get that is like, remember what it was like to be in your squad. Yeah. Right. When, you're, when your buddy was falling a little bit behind, it wasn't, right. I mean, there was some heckling, but there was, you know, it, it wasn't, oh, they suck and they just can't get right. And they're such a loser. And what are they doing? It wasn't that. It's just like, hey, my buddy's struggling, right? We're going to share the load. We're going to make it happen because we all get there. Yeah. That's the point. We're all getting where we're going. Yeah. Um, and that's the, you know, that's the, the perspective that we have as opposed to who in this micro moment is contributing and not contributing and what's the debt to be paid and all those sort of things that happen. So again, back in the civilian world, apply that, like look around to this community of people, your success pack, let go of the ledger of who's doing what and who's contributing. Just get everyone where they're trying to go. Right. And if you just focus on that, you'll have much more fruitful relationships. But I think many people will find that connection that they've been missing in the civilian world when you don't think about it that way. Solid point. Awesome. Uh, So what advice would you give um, a, a civilian who has no military experience? What would be one thing that you would want them to understand about the military or about transitioning from the military? I'm going to have to think about that for a second. I guess the biggest one is that it's an identity shift, right? It's not just that you're picking up a job, you're taking on a new project. Um, There's a certain way of being in the military where that is who you are. That's what you do. You have this entire culture that pushes that and you're part of that. And when you come out in the civilian world, it's not just can they do the job. It's can, how are they doing with this identity shift from being a part of that to being where we are? Um, And so that would be one thing. And I think the second thing that I would say, if I got a second one, is um, 
pay attention to what you can learn from them about some of these things that we're talking about, about community, about excellence, about getting it done, about can do. Right. Um, and so um, I think a lot of times we start talking, we, we think about transitioning vets, like they need to transition to civilian society. I would invert that and say, what can civilian society learn from the transitioning vets that will make their communities, their businesses, their organizations better. Right. So maybe we need to spend less time transitioning, transitioning military service members and transitioning our and more time transitioning our civilian organizations um, so that they um, do foster that culture of excellence and can do and community and all those things that we've been talking about. Oh, excellent. I, I really appreciate that. I think that's some some pretty sage advice. Uh, um, so, yeah, that's kind of. I could ask like a million questions, but I, I don't, I know you're a busy guy too. So I don't know if there's, if there's a different direction that you want to take it uh, or get back more into the, the start finishing piece, uh, bots, um, any. Yeah. Well, um, what I will say about start finishing that that's would be useful for listeners, whether they're civilian or whether they're transitioning military members is that I, I just want people to continually I'll, I'll use the language we've already been using. Think about the map you're following, who created that map, who created the route that you're going on. And is it perhaps time for you to create a new map for yourself and go your own routes? Um, because when you get off of that given map and that given route, I think is when you start finding your way to do your best work and your way towards your own thriving. And what I will say is, it's incredibly challenging to do that, right? It's hard um, because it's easier to people please. It's easier to accept the mission. It's easier to follow the, the given constraints that other people give you than to create this map of you living life on your own terms. And so start finishing. Yes, it kind of sits on the productivity shelf, but it's really about how you make this map and how you do the work that gets you from point A to point B. Um, and regardless of whether you pick up the book or anything else, I just want you to be thinking about this questions. Is this my map? Yeah. Is this my route? And if not, you can change those. So I have to, I have to follow that up then. Cause it, it, there's, there's this huge hole that I'd love you to talk to, you know, before you pick the map up, you got to have a compass and that compass is going to point you to that true North or your best work or whatever you want to label it. How, how did you find your compass? How do you recommend people, try and, and reconnect with that, that inner compass in order to even know which direction or how to start drawing that map. Yeah, so we're really having um, in sort of the personal development world what's called the um, core values conversation, right? And really understanding what your core values are. Um, and that's a um, tricky process at the same time that most people, when they really sit with it, know the three to five values that dominate their life. And it could be, you know, family, it could be excellence, it could be freedom, it could be those different types of things and getting clear about that. And one way to figure out what it is and what it is not is everything that's sort of all your decisions that are attached to like, well, I should do that. I want people to pause on because notice that we don't really use the should construct about things we most want to do or things that we like really, really matter to us. Um, except for when there's um, priority tension, like when you need to go to work, but you should call your mom, right? That's the, that's the language that, we, that we'll use around that. But a lot of times I want us to make more room for the things we want to do. And we don't use the should, like I should go hunting. No one says that, right? <laughs> I should eat ice cream. We don't say should in front of things we want to do, right? <laughs> um, and that's... That's the thing is so many of our values and priorities um, are under cultivated because they, they can seem super selfish, especially for people who ha have such a strong service ethic for them to be like, I'm going to take an afternoon off and just go take pretty pictures of things. Right. Even though that's really one of their values and that's something that really matters to them. They can't give themselves permission to own that value, right? And so there's multiple layers of this that you have to walk through. It's not only is it like knowing what's important to you, it's giving yourself permission for that to be important and then prioritizing accordingly, right? And I think that's where people more likely get hung up is in that giving themselves permission 
versus knowing what it is. Um, and that could be, that could look like, you know, I have young children. I want to be the best, you know, dad that I could be for them, or I want to be the best parent that I could be for them. That might mean that some of these other things I either let go of, or I'm just acceptably mediocre. Like my yard does not have to be the best yard on the block. I would rather be spending that time playing with my kids, right? The kids are the true value, the true thing that we, we can't allow ourselves to, to assent to. And so we get out there and cut our grass because we should, <laughs> right? Um, now I'm using ga- grass versus kids, but most people, I think a lot of people, I can't say most, a lot of people have some sort of um, competing priority of head trash around that where they're like, yeah, but like, what are my neighbors going to think? Who cares what your neighbors are going to think, right? What are your kids going to think? Who are they going to become, right? Or it could be, I um, want to start this business, right? That's really what I want to do, but I should provide a secure sort of found like foundation for my family and I can't do that. And so you forever spend in, you know, or not forever, you spend a decade in tension about that because, you know, you resent going to work because that's not what you want to do what you really wanted to do was start that business or start that nonprofit. So again, really sit and settle and sort of get rid of the sh- as many shoulds as you can, or at least be aware when you're saying should, right? Yeah. Um, when you hit to those three to three to five or maybe five to seven things that are truly true to matter, those values that truly matter, then say, you know, then think what would it, what do I need to give myself permission to really allow those to be what truly matters to me? And the second thing is, what would it look like to change my life so that I cultivated those values more, so that I instantiated, so that I followed those values more, as opposed to forever waiting until someday later when there's not some sort of firefight that I need to put out, or there's not some urgency, or there's not something. That's when I'll go do the thing. Because guess what? Y'all know there's always going to be a firefight. There's always going to be something that makes it easier for you to say yes to something else and somebody else and no to yourself. Yeah. And I know that uh, for, for me and for a lot of us, I think today with COVID, the additional challenges of COVID and giving ourselves grace and accepting what we really can and can't for, for me, one of my mantras, I think in the last 60, 90 days in, in particular is, uh, and I, I, I don't know who said it. I should have used it enough. I need to go look up who said it so that I can credit them. But you know, there's no such thing as a good time and a bad time. There's just time and what you choose to do with it. And one of the things the military does do a good job is, is framing those priorities. And I think one of the techniques or tools to help us remember what's really important uh, is, is a time horizon. Uh, Again, I learned from you, right? So I am a a ripe old age of 50 here. Uh, And, you know, so if, if the theory holds true that to, to do an impactful thing takes five years, depending on the project you're working through. And the average lifespan is, uh, of an American is 80 years old. So if I have 30 years left and every significant project runs about five years, stating, you know, looking at my roadmap, looking at my compass and saying, wow, I've got six impactful things potentially remaining on planet Earth, that gets things real clear real fast. <laughs> yeah, real clear, real fast. And thanks for bringing that up. You know, I call I call this sort of project world and the fact that we live our life when you really look at it, like significant projects, you know, whether that's getting a new job, starting a new organization and going through the first iteration of the organization or whatever it may be, takes about five years and credit where credit's due. Um, I, I had been thinking about that for a while, but it was actually Stuart Brand who you know, in a, in a book where someone else was referencing him had that idea. And I was like, wow. So, so to your point, Rachel, I made it 85 just because I look at um, most of us are living a little bit longer. Right. So uh, you get an extra pro you get an extra project, right. but it's you're absolutely right. Like it, it's super clarifying to be like, okay, I've got seven things to seven, five year significant projects that I can do. Is this map that I'm on taking me towards one of those seven? And if not, why? What's going on here, right? Um, And I will, I need to say this so that people know, transitioning from the military is one of those projects, right? Um, Because it's like taking whatever you've been doing and 
creating your own map and living your own thing like that takes the time and it's either you do it pretty quickly or you realize like you've been marking time for 10 15 years it's like oh crap now i need to do that thing that actually is the best version of me so that project is somewhere right it's sort of like the 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 project or the the sort of um the tour that you didn't that you didn't know you were signing up for <laughs> right um but there's a tour there and um it's what are you going to do with that time right and how are you going to allow yourself to be in that season of the, of your life that's going to be awkward where you're not you're not going to be that high performing you know soldier or airman or seaman you're not quite going to be in the civilian mode that's your best version of yourself. You're just sort of that awkward transition. And that's okay because just like when you were in that awkward transition from civilian to, you know, boot camp or whatever that is, that's an awkward period <laughs> of your life. It's really intense, right? Um, but we have to sort of stretch out the, you know, the backside boot camp, right? To be three to five years as you rebuild your life and, and go really what you want to do. And, and I want to be clear here. Um, I think the very best way we can go about framing our military experience is not that we're getting back to life or not that, you know, we had life deferred or whatever. It's like, it's just compost for this next season of your life. How do you take the best parts of that? Um, how do you take the worst parts of that? Yeah. And sort of till it up in the ground and plant seeds of your new life on it. Right. So everything is useful. The hard right the great the in-between the the all the mundane it has all led to you being this version of yourself how are you going to use it as opposed to how are you going to get away from it yeah absolutely absolutely and i think that you know that's one of our charters that's the term record the journey right so one of the questions we get is what is this journey and the journey is different for different veterans for some it's the journey uh, back to uh finding their, their, their values, their compass, making that map. For some, it's reintegrating uh, and accepting, reconciling who you were before the war with who you are after the war. Uh, mm -hmm. for, for me, one of my biggest challenges was staying as an open, compassionate human being, having been, been a firsthand witness to some of the things that humans can do to each other that aren't quite so nice. You know, it's real easy. The easy way is to block all that off. Uh, but and, and that works and there's nothing wrong with that for a while. It's a, it's a valid coping mechanism. But if you want to continue to grow as a human, if you want to be able to get out there in the world and participate with those impactful projects uh, and, and continue to grow as a human, you have to find a way to move past that and, and reach out uh, to other veterans who've done it before you, to, to your family, to your support ne network, to your success packs to say, all right, guys, I, this is where I'm trying to get to. Here's my map and here's my compass. Now help me build these checkpoints. So that, yeah. you know, I can navigate to where we're trying to get to in this life. Yeah, I really, really feel you on that. I'm glad you put that out. Um, one thing, one slight word change that may be helpful for people, right? Because you said getting past that or moving forward past that. Yeah. Um, if it's helpful for you, consider going forward with that, right? And the difference is, is like, I think many of us struggle with getting past and it's still there and it's still like, it's kind of like, you know, um, fear. And there's some people that think that courage is not being afraid. Right. And I think that's really naive. I think courage is being able to act with fear. Right. And so I think in the same sort of way, um, if you can move past the harder parts of it, then that's useful for you, then do that. But if the fight and the struggle has been that you can't get past it, I would be asking, how can you move forward with it? Right. It's just a part of the load that you're carrying, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad part of the load that that can do something for you, even if its sole job is to remind you to be humble because you made that you made a bad decision in a, in a scenario that led to something that you're, you know, that you regret. So that can give you humility for this next decision to realize that, like, you made bad decisions. Right. Yeah, that's a thing that can happen. How can you approach this with more humility or maybe it's empathy? When you see someone else make a decision or do something and you're like, what the hell are they doing? Right. How's good. It is such so dumb and things like that. And you go back and like, oh yeah, I've had one of those moments too. Yeah. Right. Uh, maybe I could be a little bit more gracious in this moment. So again, maybe you move past it. Maybe you move with it. 
I really like that distinction. Lang language structures thought, right? So those are really important nuances. Uh, and and yeah, super, super valid point. And I need to, uh, that was great because it was an unconscious word choice. So it's definitely something I'll, I'll pay attention to. You know, I, I really believe that the power of being a multi-potentialite is we have this richness of experience and you don't know what's going to relate to that next project until you're in the middle of it. So I want to bring all that richness the messy parts, the fun parts, the, the pretty parts and the ugly parts. That's part of the human experience. Yeah. Well, um, you mentioned yesterday, or you mentioned that um, start finishing has been out about a year. And yesterday was actually his birthday, September 24th. So it's been out a year. And as I was writing up a post that I haven't published about that yet, I sort of structured in the way, Rachel, you'll, you'll feel, you'll know how familiar this is. Like what were the wins? And what were the setbacks <laughs> and heartbreaks? And then what are we doing moving forward? Right. And as I was sort of cataloging some of the heartbreaks in the moment, I was like, this is, you know, in the moment of those heartbreaks and missteps, I was like, this is such a distraction. This is so in the way if these things hadn't happened, we would have had X happen. Right. X or Y. So just eh, right. You hang on to that a year away from some of those things. I'm like, no, no, that's an essential part of the story. Right, that's an essential part of this whole thing, and it would not be what it is without those. And not in a way that it's like, you know, I've got to like have some moodiness or have some sort of darkness with it. But it's like, even during during those heartbreaks, and I can give a specific example here. Um, my wife and I, um, about two three weeks ago, a year a year last year, basically this time last year, let's say it that way, it's easier. Um, we had an unexpected miscarriage. Um, and so I'm 40, she's 40 as well. We didn't even know we can have kids. Right. Um, and so it's one of those like, okay. Um, and so as we're going through sort of thinking about what that's like to be, you know, unexpected 40 year old parents, um, going up on this major book launch, which is basically a decade in the, in the making. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, we had a miscarriage or she had a miscarriage and I was along for the ride. Um, and, um, it made parts of the book launch and book tour really hard because there we are grieving this hard, yeah. like that's there, right? Yeah. Um, and a thing that common, co commonly comes up for me, Rachel, when I give talks about start finishing and about this whole map and route, they're, but they're like, Charlie, you don't get it. You don't get it. Life is hard. I'm going through some things right now. Like it's, you just don't get it. Like that's great for you because things are golden for you, right? <laughs> but it's super hard for me, so nah, I'm, I'm out, right? And so as we were going through this, I, I, I know that comes up at every talk, right? Um, just because that's the story that we, so many of us will tell. I can't build this map because my life is hard right now. Yeah. And not seeing that I'm gonna stay on the same map that I'm on that's gonna keep it being hard. And so I have to sort of push back against that. And so there's a way, Rachel, where, I was like, okay, Charlie, I know you're going through some things. Yes, I do talk to myself, right? Um, <laughs> coach myself. Well, I know you're going through this, but it's not helpful. It's absolutely not helpful to be like, well, I'm going through some things too, and I'm up here doing this. Like that just shames someone. That just like, that's not useful. And so what I ended up doing was channeling that into sort of empathy and channeling that into sort of compassion and making that bridge. Because like, I get it. I absolutely get how hard it is. Right. I absolutely get all of the challenges, having these challenges behind the scenes that people don't see. Right. And how that can be challenging and how that can keep you from doing the work that you're here to do and being the person that you're here to get it. And then bridge from that as opposed to just pushing back and saying, like, I'm doing it. So you should do it, too. Which, again, not helpful when you're going through your own struggle. Um, and so. That, you know, that little micro story there um, is what I'm talking about, like moving with it versus moving past it or becoming an essential part of the project. Yeah. Because I could have said, had it not been from the miscarriage, I would have had more focus. I would have been able to do more things. I would have been more on point. But my frame from it now, your past is like, because I had that, I was able to meet people in that moment. I was able to um, have an urgency around the preciousness of life and the choices that, that we make and, and things that come. And that's what it, that's its job yeah. in a way. Don't want yeah. any more of those. Right? <laughs> um, I would, no, don't, don't heat more on me 2020, please. <laughs> um, but um, I, I just put that out there because I'm, I'm asking 
you know, all people, but also military service members who have experienced some of those things to say, how is that become, how does that enrich my work to your point? How do I deploy that as a strength as opposed to hide it as a weakness? And, and it brings up the really good, uh, again, famous military quote was probably, I think it was Eisenhower maybe or uh, MacArthur that no plan survives first contact, but there's mm-hmm. great value in building the plan. So mm-hmm. it, it, it reminds me that, you know, say a map as military members, you know, you're thinking that nice three-dimensional topography, all the colors, all the things, but really, you know, just a strip map, start somewhere, right? Start somewhere and, and just get some momentum, one foot in front of the other, have a, have a, a general direction that you're headed and you can make it pretty as you go and you can make it more complex as you go, but perfect is the enemy of good. You just have to start finishing and you do that one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time, one checkpoint at a time, whatever it takes to just get up and get that forward momentum. Yeah. Rachel, I haven't heard strip map in a decade. <laughs> that, that takes me back. So thanks for that. And um, that's, that's joy there, but it's absolutely on point. The other way of thinking about this is think about, you know, your map is being written on a whiteboard, right? You make a mistake, you just simply erase it, you draw it to the next place, right? But I think so many of us, when we think about our routes, we think about our plans, we think about our maps, we think about all those sort of things, we sort of write that in permanent marker, right? It's the thing that you got to go. And if you deviate from that, right, then that's a problem. And I'm like, well, what if you just like erase it and go back because you didn't have the information that you needed at the time, right? So you didn't, you, you, we update the map. That's what we do, right? You update your plans. Um, and I just, the question is when you're in those scenarios, am I updating the map because I have new information or am I updating the map because I'm checking out on myself? Right. Um, and we all, I think, know the difference when we sit with that question. And if it's new information, the smart thing to do <laughs> is to change the map. Because you check it out on yourself, probably the smart thing to do is to, you know, exercise a little bit more of that courage muscle and get back into it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're lost, the worst thing you can do is to keep going. It's better to just stop, sit down and figure out where, where you're at, where were you and where are you going? Yeah. Five minutes of sitting down can say five hours, five days, or five months of, you know, um, getting back on course once you kept going. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the, one of the other projects we're doing, if you're, if you're willing to, to join in is, uh, again, helping to educate our, our civilian uh, brothers and sisters on what military veterans look like. There, there might be a, a slight stereotype on what a veteran looks like. So we're asking our military veterans just to look in the camera and just say, this is what a military veteran looks like. This is what a military veteran looks like. Awesome. Thank you for that. Thanks. Um, yeah. And, you know, last but not least, and, you know, gosh, I could talk for like hours, especially on the philosophy side, but any comments on, on, you know, when you deployed, I'm sure Angela was at home, uh, just the, the struggles and the stresses on the military family members as well. They, they serve, they may not wear a uniform, but boy, they, they sure serve just like the rest of us. Yeah, they serve just like the rest of us. And thanks so much for bringing that out. Angela, um, she was in grad school at the time. Um, and so I, I think we're on mission. They're there to support us. Think about what they're going through in the sense of like, we had moved to Nebraska from Arkansas. So she's in this new place. She doesn't really know anyone. And then her husband's deployed. And so she's in grad school doing this new thing by herself and um, going through the journey of, is he going to make it? Is he not going to make it? Am I going to get a call? Am I not going to get a call? Like those types of things. And so, yeah, um, absolutely. Think. And, and the other reason that I, I would have even more sympathy for the family members, they don't have the training, yeah. right? They don't have that same support structure that I talked about earlier, especially if you're a reservist, right? Especially if you're in the you know reserve component or the National Guard component for your particular branch. Right. Um, they're just not the resources there. There's not a community behind them in that same way as if you're an active duty soldier or family on base and the whole base or that unit from the base goes. So um, Angela's, um, I guess this is just kind of the way we roll. Her dissertation was on the coping strategies of um, family members who um, of reservists who, who deploy and come back home. Oh, interesting. That's what she ended up writing her dissertation on. Like, what's in front of you and what's, what's a hole in the research turned out both 
both tied up, you know, together quite nicely. Um, so, um, here's what I'd say. Some of those phone calls, some of those requests for phone calls, some of those requests for letters and things like that, there's a way you can see it as they're trying to reach out to like reconnect with their squad and reconnect with their person, um, more so than anything else. Um, and, um, understand that when you come back home, this is also another point we didn't talk about in the previous parts of this. There are multiple identity shifts coming on. And I know a lot of, um, a lot of returning soldiers struggle because their family has figured out how to be, how to survive without them. Yeah. Right. And so you come back home and you just expect to fall back into where things were before. And they're like, "Mm -mm, we got our own thing going on here. Right. You know, like we, we've had to do this to support you over there. Yeah. And so as you come back in, just recognize that like, just like you built that squad, your family became their own squad. Yeah. And it just takes time to reintegrate back into that. And there's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some heartbreak. There's going to be some awkwardness. And it's not that they don't love you. It's not that they're not happy that you're back home. They've just done their own thing. And now you're rejoining a party that you left. Um, And everybody can be happy about that. It's just, you got to rebuild that party. Yeah. To, in large part, our lives, as we deployed our, our civilian lives, our home lives, where we pushed pause, where they didn't have the luxury of being single focused to push pause. So life continued. So you come back and there's that reorientation to figure out, you know, how things changed. Uh, I know that technology is, is a wonderful thing. The fact that you and I are able to have this conversation from two time zones and several states away, but it's also sped up um, the that orientation, which can be very disorienting, if you will. Uh, my uncle was uh, a combat engineer in Vietnam. And when he finished his tour, they put him on a ship and he had all the time uh, to tell stories and to sleep and just relive things with his, his mates, with his, his, mm-hmm. with his squad. And then you get home and you've sort of had time to process. I can tell you, and the, we've gotten a lot better, but I, I was on the first wave um, in, in Iraq and uh, I went, within 24 hours from being in a really gnarly rocket attack to being in my living room. And you're like, who am I? What role do I play? How does this, there was no time for transition, right? So they're getting better. Now they'll hold folks for a week or two weeks in Kuwait or or some of the other places before they let them go home. But still, you know, six months on a ship or three months on a ship versus, you know, 24, four, even two weeks. And that, that spouse, those kids, uh, you know, mom, dad, whoever it is that you left behind, they had that, that year, that six months of, of every day still on the grind, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, the homework, the school, the bills, the house, the car. It just, you got to give each other a little patience and give each other time. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we found uh, photography is a great medium because super low barrier to entry. Everybody's got a smartphone in their pocket, right? So, you can go out with Angela or, you know, we've got folks who go out with their kids. You don't have to talk about what went down. You're just in the moment. You're making some pictures of things that drew your attention that kind of inspired you sort of finding what interests you. And then you come back and you get to share the story of why that image uh, and you, no words really required, right? You're just sharing a moment, sharing a, uh, a photograph. And our hopes is after you finish one of our, photography adventures that that next weekend you go home and you do it all over again with the crew and you're creating that common bond again, creating those common moments to share with each other. Yeah. I love that. Several things popped up. Um, One was just a a moment of empathy for the rocket attack. I didn't know that. So um, that's, that's, that's hard to go through. That's super hard to go through. Right. So um, just wanted to witness that. Um, Another thing that came up is that our trauma response or the emotional weight of things doesn't track where our bodies often are and where our minds are often are, right? Where something like that, it, the true emotional weight of that may come up three to six months later. It may come up, you know, once you've deployed, you thought you were transitioned, you thought you were good, right? And then that's when the weight of that, you know, kind of, comes back. And so that's also, I think another thing we need to talk about while we're talking about this is that 
this reintegration process is not linear and it does not track where like, time in a way that we would, that would make sense. Right. Um, or that you think would make sense. So just make room for that and be having some of those conversations. But on that same point, what I really like what you mentioned and one of the difficulties is that when you're in it, when you're deployed, when you're, you know, when you're on duty, you're usually doing something like there's a lot of doing, there's a lot of activity, right? And there's not a whole lot of like talking and processing your feelings and like, it's not that type of environment. And so that recruit your body to be able to help out in different ways. Um, it can also suppress some things in different ways, but then you come back to a civilian world where often is not that right. There's not a lot of that doing. And then all of a sudden people want to start talking to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's hard, right? Because you're like, one, I haven't been doing this whole emotional processing thing for a long time. That's not the role, yo, right? That's yeah. not how we do it. Um, and then you're like, how did, what was your experience? And what was it like? And what was that like? What's it like to see this? And like, you get all that. And you're like, I can't stop. Yeah, right? that's right. Because um, yeah. I don't know. I haven't processed that at the level you're asking me because I just went through different things. Um, and so what I just want to say, what I love what you're doing there is like some of the integration is like, to get back to non-talking but physical things like if you need to get to the gym if you need to go on hikes if you need to go do those sort of things where you don't have people like and that's a hard conversation to have in the sense because so many people may love on you and want to hear about your experience and they think they're supporting you by asking you all the questions and all that kind of what i'm trying to get you to talk yeah. When really they're just creating more pressure for you yeah right and so i having the conversations about like I, there will be a time where I would really love to talk about this and I, I understand exactly how you're trying to be there for me. I'm just going to need to go for a walk for, you know, two or three hours and, and get out of my head and some of the conversations and, and get back into my body. And that's a completely valid thing that I want people to allow themselves space for, whether or not you're a vet or not, right? But sp specifically for vet that come from that sort of fast-paced doing, 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 using your body, moving up, down, right? In the truck, out of the truck, right? Over here yeah. to the talk, to the defect, to the thing, right? There's just movement all yeah. the time. Right? Yeah. Um, and then we come home and sit at a desk. Um, so make room, make space for you to get back into some of those movement activities and understand that there might need to be two or three hours of your day. That's just some version of that to let your body, heart and mind sort of reintegrate after that experience. Absolutely. No, super, super valid points. And, and I tell you, you know, it's an iterative process for sure, the, the transition. And, you know, uh, I appreciate the, the comment about the rocket attack. And the, the irony is that was just one of dozens of experiences that I don't even consider it a thing anymore. Right. So, but there's different levels. Trauma creates its own, um, Hmm. labeling leveling system but uh, you know and and i have multiple combat deployments i do uh what's called civil affairs for the army which is basically humanitarian assistance but you're always outside the wire you're always dealing with the locals and you're trying to alleviate suffering where you can let war fighters be war fighters and keep our civilians and kids off the battlefield so we don't have uh, more folks getting caught up you know if the, the army's battle it out um but you know so lots of experiences lots of positives, lots of highs and lots of lows, right? So I was actually uh, about, uh, gosh, nine months ago. Um, so 9-11, you know, kicked, kicked all this off for many of us. And my partner was actually in the Pentagon on 9-11. Uh, and I had completely forgotten about that event. I'm like, holy cow, how can you, how can you forget that was such an emotional, you know, is she okay? Is she not okay? You know, no, we didn't have cell phones, but just how the the brain just buried that for a while. Right. So, and you're right, you can't deal with it while you're over there. And I think for reserve and national guard, it's even harder because you can get called up at any time. So all that just goes into the box and it's not time to open that box and process till you're not going over there because you've got to mentally be able to, to, to lead. Um, and you've got to mentally be able to make it back home again. So uh, I really appreciate the, the comment on that. I think there's a lot of somatic, um, learning, unlearning, uh, just checking in that, that absolutely is a part of that return home and part of that transition process. And it just, it takes time. And having worked in emergency medicine and having worked in law enforcement before and seeing our, our older veterans, you know, Vietnam vets and some World War II and Korean vets, um, my experience is for, for most people, 
you have to deal with it or eventually it's going to deal with you. So you may as well be part of the process and, and, uh, and work through it together. Yeah. And dealing with it. Right. And I, th- I think here's the, here's the last thing. And I, I realize we we've been riffing for a while. It's <laughs> a great conversation. I appreciate that. Um, it, it got me thinking of the, you know, over, under, around, or through sort of mentality that we can have as, as, you know, as army folks, like there's an obstacle over, under, around, or through. Those are the four ways that you can get through this. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's basically going back to like overcome it, move, move on. Yeah. Right. Dealing with it with some of the stuff that we're talking about is not necessarily like dealing with it to solve it in that short moment. It's actually just engaging with it. Right. And finding a place to have those conversations and, and with yourself and, and things like that. So I just say that because I remember as a, as a military commander, um, you know, there were, there was some suffering around like that they were dealing with it, but it was still there. Right. Like I can't, I'm dealing with it, but it's still there. And I was like, no, I let's change that mindset there. Right. Like engaging with it, processing it is dealing with it, but it's not this obstacle that like you go over under around or through and you're just done with it once you've made that, you know, you, you've done that pull or that dig or that, you know, or that loop around. Yeah. So yeah. I just wanted to touch in on that. Cause again, I think that's part of this part of the struggle we can put ourselves on. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that, you know, as commander, as a commander and, and for myself as a senior uh, on the NCO side, a senior leader, you know, modeling that this is okay. This is normal. This is how the body and the brain deals with it. And there's nothing wrong with it. And there's no shame in that game. And sometimes checking in with the helpers, those who are used to helping is almost more important um, because people like, oh, oh, that's Charlie. He's got it. He's, he's got it. He's got this. But at the end of the day, we're all human. And just like there's, you know, over, under and around and through, there's just certain physical and mental limitations that come with being a human on planet earth. And there's so many ways that people deal so many ways that people repress, but you know, walls are broken down with words first. Um, so having conversations like this really matter. So appreciate the candor, the honesty and the insights today. Cool. Um, well, it's been a fantastic conversation. I, I think, um, for our listeners sake, we, we might want to wrap this one up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thanks so much for having me today, Rachel. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.